Chapter 16 of Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Regiment of Women by Clement Stain. Chapter 16. The spring term was nearly over, holidays and a trip to Italy deliciously near. Yet Claire Hartle sat at breakfast and frowned over a neatly written letter. Claire Hartle did not encourage the re-entry of old friends into her life. She did not forget them. She would look back upon the far-off flaming intimacy with regret, would quote its pleasures to the friend of the hour with disconcerting enthusiasm, but she was never eager for the reappearance of any whose ways had once diverged from her own. Pleasant memories, if you will, but, in the flesh, old friends were tiresome. They claimed instant intimacy, were free-tongued, fond, familiar, could not realize that though they might choose to stand still, she, Claire, had grown out of their knowledge, beyond their fellowship. She, indeed, would find them terribly unaltered, older, glamorless, yet amazingly, humiliatingly the same. She would look at them furtively as she entertained them, and shudder at the lapse from taste that surely must have explained her former affection. She would be gracious, kind, yet inimitably distant, and would send them away at last, subdued, vaguely disquieted, loyal still, yet very sure they would never trouble her again. Which was exactly what Claire Hartle intended. Yet she had her fits of remorse withal, her secret bitter railing at fate and her own nature, for that she could neither keep a friend nor live without one. Recovering, she would be complacent at having contrived, without loss of prestige, to rid herself of bores. There was one fly in her ointment. Who knows not that fly, earnest and well-intentioned, which, when it is dug out with a hairpin, cleanses itself exhaustively and forthwith returns to the vaseline jar? Such a fly optimistic and persistent, was the correspondent who invariably signed herself, Ever, dear Clare, your affectionate little friend, Olivia Pring. P.S. Do you remember? There would follow a reminiscence, at least twenty years old, that Clare never did remember. Olivia Pring was a schoolmate. There had been a term together in the lower third. For a few weeks she had been Clare's best friend, and she never let Clare forget it. Claire, with removes and double removes, had disappeared speedily from Olivia's world, but she never quite shook off Olivia. Olivia, amiable, admiring, impervious to snubs, refused to be shaken off. She went her placid way, became a governess, and an expert in the more complicated forms of crochet. She wrote to Claire about twice a year, dull, affectionate letters. Claire, that invalid character, amazed herself by invariably answering them. At long intervals, Olivia would be passing through London, and would announce herself, if quite convenient, as intending to visit her dear Clare that afternoon. She would describe the lengthy tussle between herself and her employer, before she had wrested the requisite permission to stay the night, and did Clare remember the last visit but three, and the amusing evening they had had? and the letter was invariably delayed in the posting, and its arrival would precede that of Olivia by a bare half-hour. 
Olivia, growing even fatter and more placid, would apologize breathlessly between broad smiles at the sight of Claire and recollections of the dear old days. And Claire, as one hypnotized, would go to her linen cupboard and give out sheets for the spare room. There would follow an evening of interminable small talk for Claire, of sheer delight for Olivia Pring, who, consciously and conscientiously commonplace, enjoyed dear Claire's during views as the youthful curate might enjoy, strictly as an onlooker, what he imagines to be the less respectable aspects of an evening in Paris. And Claire would retire to bed at 10.15 and sleep as she had not slept for weeks. Olivia would be regretfully obliged to catch the 8.11 and would depart amid embraces, and Claire would order up a second breakfast and wonder why she stood it. Yet the pile of unused doilies in her linen cupboard increased yearly. A doily was Olivia's invariable tribute, and arrived, intricate and unlovely, within a week of her visit. Claire fingered her letter in quaint helplessness. She had a sleepless night behind her, and a big morning's work before, and her usual end-of-term headache. Olivia was arriving. She glanced at the hopelessly legible sheets. At 3.50 no chance of mistake there claire decided that it was quite impossible for her to survive a seven hours tete-a-tete with her affectionate friend olivia pring if only alwyn could help her out but alwyn she knew was taking the skimmings of the sixths and fifths to a suitable shakespeare performance she had taken the pick of the classes herself the evening before no chance of alwyn then and cynthia alack for cynthia who could have been trusted to amuse Olivia Pring as much as Olivia Pring would have amused her? Cynthia must be aboard ship by now. Claire, in regretful parenthesis, hoped Cynthia would send a few compatriots to Utterbridge. Americans gave a fillip to one's duties. Anyhow, Alwyn and Cynthia were out of the question. There was Louise, she brightened. Louise, queer little thing, was always amusing. Louise would serve her turn. Louise would be so charmed to come. Claire laughed a little consciously. Perhaps she had neglected Louise a trifle of late. Perhaps it was not altogether fair of her. A happy thought buffered the prick of her yawning conscience. It was Alwyn's fault. Alwyn, with her ridiculous, well-meaning objections. She, Claire, had given in to them, for peace and quiet's sake. And now, most probably... Louise was not too content with life. One knew what schoolgirls were. Never mind. Claire would be very nice to Louise this evening. Louise should enjoy herself, and incidentally, preserve Claire from expiring of boredom at poor Olivia's large, flat feet. The invitation was given during the eleven o'clock break. Claire would occasionally join the school in Big Hall, and share its milk and biscuits often enough to make it any day's delightful possibility, not often enough for it to be other than an event. She would sit on the platform steps, watching the gay promenaders below, informal, approachable, tossing the ball to the daring few, hedged about, in turn, by the tentative many. Sometimes she would stroll about the hall with a girl on either side, or one only. She had a curious little trick of catching the girl she spoke with by the elbow, and pushing her gently along as she talked, bending over, she was very tall, and enveloping. 
Everybody knew the gendarme stunt, as Cynthia Griffiths irreverently termed it, and no one would have dreamed of approaching or interrupting such a tete-a-tete. Nevertheless, Miss Hartle had not exchanged three sentences with Louise Denny on the morning of Olivia Pring's arrival, before every girl in Big Hall knew of it, and twice the number of eyes were following them, with an elaborately accidental gaze in their progress. Possibly Claire was a little touched by Louise's delight at the invitation. At any rate, she managed, in spite of her headache, to be a very charming companion. She confessed to the headache, and asked Louise for advice. And Louise, deeply concerned, could think of nothing but a recipe she had found in Claire's own cold pepper, in which rhubarb and powdered dormice figured largely. She suggested it in a doubtful little voice. The school would have given a good deal to know what made Miss Hartle laugh so. Miss Hartle told Louise all about her visitor, whom, she declared, she depended on Louise to entertain, and added a couple of comical tales of their mutual school days. Unfortunately, Claire's novelli owed their charm more to her inventive touches and graphic manner than to the actual underlying fact. Louise was left with the impression of an Olivia Pring, who had been Friar Tuck to Claire's Robin Hood. She appreciated the honor of being asked to meet her to a degree that would have tickled Claire, had she guessed it. Miss Olivia Pring! Louise meditated all day over Miss Olivia Pring, evidently Miss Hartle's best friend. She hoped Miss Olivia Pring would like her. How dreadful it would be if she didn't. For what might she not say to her of Miss Hartle? Louise must be careful, oh, so careful, of her manners and her speech. It was rather hard luck that she would not have Miss Hartle to herself. It would be dreadfully uncomfortable, talking before a stranger. Except for the delightfulness of being asked by Miss Hartle, she could have wished that Miss Hartle had not asked her. Rather an ordeal for a thirteen-year-old, supper with Miss Hartle and Miss Olivia Pring. Now shyness, like any other painful sensation, is inexplicable to such as have not experienced it, is at once forgotten by such as outgrow it, but to those at its mercy, to sheer, suffering, paralyzing, stultifying, a spiritual torture of the pair. Claire Hartle should have understood. She had her own furtive childhood for reference, but Claire Hartle had a headache, and she was very tired of Olivia Pring. Olivia was so placid, so shapeless, so ridiculous in her pink flannel blouse and the reckless glasses that were ever on the point of toppling over the precipice of her abbreviated nose into the abyss of her half-open mouth. It certainly did not occur to Claire that Louise could feel the slightest discomfort on account of Olivia Pring. But Louise was blind to the flannel blouse and the foolish face and the unmanageable glasses. She was wearing glasses of her own, rose-colored affairs, through which Miss Pring appeared not only as a grown-up and a stranger, but as the intimate of deity in undress. Miss Pring did nothing to dispel the illusion she had conscientiously flattened the high spirits out of too many little girls to be interested in a new specimen. She addressed herself chiefly to Claire, recalling, incessantly, and enlarging upon, trifling incidents of their mutual past, which every fresh sentence of the badgered hostess contrived to recall to her elastic memory. Louise, always sensitive, her shyness growing with every word, could but take each unexplained illusion as a personal snub 
and feeling herself entirely superfluous, began to imagine that Miss Hartle was already regretting the invitation. Panic-struck, she tried to remedy matters by effacing herself as completely as possible. It was wonderful what a small and insignificant person Louise could sometimes look, and did look that evening in one of Claire's big armchairs. Her prim little whisper and deprecatory smile might have struck Claire as pathetic, if Claire had not been so very tired of the affectionate reminiscences of Olivia Pring. As it was, she was annoyed. She had asked Louise of the bright eyes and quick stammer, and extravagant imagery, to supper with her, the panther cub, not the leveret. She had talked of Louise, too, had looked forward to putting the child through its paces, if only for the benefit of Olivia Pring. She had even surmised that Louise would take Olivia's measure, and that a nod from Claire would be delicately, deliciously impertinent. Indeed, she had thought her capable of it. But it was only a schoolgirl, after all, a silly, tongue-tied schoolgirl, that she had for an instant compared with Alwyn. Alwyn, monstrously absent, a match for ten Olivia's. She yawned, shrugged her shoulders, and suggested, in fine ironic fit, a game of old maid. Olivia was extremely pleased. She so much preferred old maid, or beggar my neighbor, perhaps, to bridge. She did not approve of bridge. In her position, it did not do. Claire would remember that she had always said. Claire fetched the cards. Louise, Louise! You have done yourself no good tonight. Shy? Nonsense! What is there to be shy about? A few words from Miss Hartle, a prompting or two, a leading question, could have broken the ice of your shyness for you, eh? And Miss Hartle knows it, as well as you, if not better. That shall not avail you. Who are you, to set Miss Hartle's conscience itching? Miss Hartle has a headache. Pull up your chair, and deal your cards, and stop Miss Hartle yawning, if you can. Believe me, it's your only chance of escape. Louise was a clumsy dealer. Her careful setting out of cards irritated Claire to snatching point. Olive triumph in every game. On principle, Claire disliked losing, even at Bigger My Neighbor, and they played Bigger My Neighbor till ten o'clock. Louise grew more cheerful as the evening progressed, ventured a few sentences now and then. Claire was dangerously suave with both her guests, but Louise, taking all in good faith, hoped after all that she had not appeared as stupid as she felt. It had been dreadful at first, she reflected, as she put on coat and hat, but it had gone better afterwards. She didn't believe Miss Hartle was cross with her. That had been a silly idea of her own. Miss Hartle was just as usual. She made her farewells. Claire came out into the hall and ushered her forth. Goodbye, Louise smiled up at her. It was so kind of you to have me. I have so much enjoyed myself. Then, the formula off her tongue, Miss Hartle, I do hope your head's better. Thank you, said Claire inscrutably. Good night. Then, as the maid went down the stairs, Louise? Yes, Miss Hartle? Claire was smiling brilliantly. Don't come again, Louise, until you can be more amusing. At any rate, natural. Good night. She shut the door. End of chapter 16 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.